This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. It's time now for another edition of A's Unfiltered. Joining us today, our buddy Jeff Blum, former Cal Bear, World Series hero with the White Sox, and now a broadcaster for the Houston Astros. And boy, it was a very uncomfortable fan fest for the Strohs. We'll talk about that. We'll have our buddy Ray Fossey on. Scott Miller will join us from San Diego, national baseball columnist for Bleach Report, also on Sirius XM. And then Woody Page, longtime columnist in Denver, and of course you've seen him for the last 18 years on Around the Horn on ESPN. So we're going to start with Jeff Blum. And, you know, the Astros guys, they haven't been talking. So we finally got Blummer to come on and address what's been happening down in Houston. Blummer, how are you? It's been a while. I, I'm glad you asked me this week instead of last week because I'm actually in a relatively decent mood, and uh, I hope you're doing well too, Chris. Well, how did your event go on Saturday night as you got uh, you got honored, I heard? Yeah, you know what? It was kind of cool. Uh, you know, Cal has their uh, kickoff gala, and, you know, you get to honor, uh, you know, what Cal Baseball did last year, and there was – you know, the past, future, present, all those guys were in attendance, and uh, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to go and sit up there and be, uh, you know, give a little bit of a, a talk to the current Cal Bears. It's always great going back there. It's such a great place for me to remember uh, playing. Well, that's I mean, I've told you for years, every single time we have you on, our text line will be like, I went to school with them or I played with them. So <laughs> it's always great. Did, did, now, they honored you. What, what, what exactly did they do? Oh, it, it, I was a guest of honor. I don't think they necessarily honored me in the sense that they retired a number or, you know, put a plaque up or anything like that. I think it was just an opportunity for me to get back and get my face in front of, you know, a lot of the Cal alumni, some of the current Cal members, and uh, just kind of reminisce about the 1992 World Series team and kind of talk about how, how beneficial and how great that university is has been for me and what are the, you know, the opportunities that it's going to create for those guys that are currently in school. And, you know, that truly being a student athlete at Cal is, is a different animal in itself. And those guys are going to be great for it. All right. We got to get to it. I know it hasn't been easy, especially when you work for a franchise and you're a broadcaster for them, but you know, from far away, it's just, it, it looks awful. I mean, there's so many things that we can go over. Fan Fest didn't go over well. Uh, obviously, A.J. Hinch and Jeffrey Luno don't have jobs right now. They're still suspended for a year. What is this just 
fire been like down in Houston? Um, interesting choice of words, but uh, it's it, it sucked. It, you know, it sucks. It still sucks. It's going to suck for a long time. And I think that's what uh, this Astros fan base, you know, kind of has to be mentally prepared for because, you know, it, even though I call games for the Astros and I have an obvious bias towards them, we've got to be honest in the sense that we knew, you know, we know now what might have been happening or what did happen. And it's really tough to absorb because, you know, we get caught up as fans. We get caught up in the pageantry. We get caught up in the passion. We get caught up, caught up in the circumstance. In 2017, if you remember, was a very special year for the Houston Astros in the sense they had a very good team. The anticipation was there. And then you had Hurricane Harvey and all the, the, the drama surrounding that and how the city kind of galvanized and, and really uh, galvanized around the ball club. And you could really sense that there was a connection between team and community. And then the Astros go on and win the World Series. So it was kind of this euphoric ending to what was a really tough summer for everybody in Houston as far as the damage and the trauma done by that storm and here we are two years later and we have to understand the fact that uh you know there might have been opportunities that they really took advantage of to try and gain an advantage in uh in and around some of the games not all the games but some of the games and they did it after rob manfred said that you should not do that and you know and here we are with suspensions firings jim crane trying to separate himself from all that damage and it's unfortunate that up until that point, A.J. Hinch and Jeff Luno had really done some great things, not just for the game of baseball, but for the Houston Astros organization and bringing them championship baseball. Were you surprised that no players were disciplined? Yeah, I'm still kind of curious about that, to be honest with you, because, I mean, that's kind of, you know, you've covered this game for a while, and our under, at least my understanding haven't been in the game and you understand the game, watching the game and fans at the same token, kind of, you know, how do you punish a player? There's two things that hold a, a lot of value for a player. It's playing time and it's money. And I understand the suspension would be a really tough thing to do because if you actually found evidence that all, you know, 10 position players, let's just say, were guilty of doing this, you can't suspend them or, you you know, trying to scatter 10 suspensions over the course of the year would really create some logistical issues for an organization. So I understand the suspension not being a part of it, but at the same time, you know, you could dig into their wallets and, and find them a, a certain amount. And I think that would really be prove as a good deterrent to future uh, guys who are thinking about doing the same thing that the Astros did. You know, it's much like hitting a batter. If you hit a batter, start a fight, you're going to get fined. So that's why we see less fights and less hit by pitches and, uh, you know, stuff like that. So I think that would have been a way. But it was interesting that Manfred had said that I will give blanket immunity to all players who come forward and talk. So he kept their names out of it, except for Carlos Beltran, who I think got screwed in the whole situation. But uh, they don't get fined. They don't get suspended. They don't get named. So we're just going to move on. And, like, the players didn't actually do anything. You know, I, I talked about this on the show because, you know, when, when you name four people, you act like, okay, these are the four people and they're going to be dealt with and we'll move on. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. A lot has to go into this, right? Somebody has to purchase the mm-hmm. equipment. Someone has to set up the equipment. There was a lot of people involved in this, and it seems like they're all getting away with it. And you just you you wonder like it, it, it's so much more than just those four people. 
No, it is. And again, I'm going to keep referring to the report because that was the one thing that, you know, the, the concrete substantial evidence and uh, some of the findings they have were in that report. And that's another thing I like you're saying I found interesting about the report is it did name Jeff Luno and A.J. Hinch. They're in obvious leadership roles. And sometimes you have to suffer the consequences of subordinates not cooperating to the rule of, uh, of your team. And therefore, Jeff Luno and A.J. Hinch were the were the sacrificial lambs, so to speak. But in reading through that report, it 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 states clearly that there were subordinates underneath Jeff Luno on the baseball operations side who did have a little bit of influence, like you're saying, and in, in how the in how the video got to you know behind the dugout. And there was also you know other the subordinates underneath AJ Hinch were obviously Alex Cora who was you know facilitating this. So on the other side, Rob Manfred literally said he would leave it up to the Houston Astros, and that's where we haven't seen, you know, that reach deep into the organization to, you know, maybe uh, provide consequences for those guys who did have some influence on what happened. You know, you're a guy that played Major League Baseball. You're you're a World Series hero. You played for multiple franchises. I just the thing that I think about with these players. And if obviously there's an investigation going on right now with the Boston Red Sox about 2018, there's so much player movement around. It's just hard for me to believe that these guys thought like you played for multiple teams, like, like these guys thought they'd never get caught. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, this day and age, it's really hard to keep a secret and you know, that uh, what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse mentality uh, it's tough to uh, adhere to that uh, quote-unquote unwritten rule because there is so much movement. And then you have a situation where players move within a division, and obviously you want a competitive advantage against the opposing team you just got traded from or you just got released from, and you start to give more information. So, I mean, this spider web will, will spread across the league as far as who knows what, who's done what. But uh, it's kind of interesting to see, like you said, how there are – players past and present who have kind of said, well, so-and-so was doing this and that, that's, what's kind of interesting to me is to see, you know, how this really unfolds, because if you start digging into the Boston Red Sox, how many, how, you know, how many other guys went to or other organizations after 2018 from the Red Sox. And then you start reaching into other organizations and that's where things get a little sketchy. You know, I think about Alex Rodriguez and Alex Rodriguez lied and lied and lied. And then finally he had to, he, he, he finally owned it, and he apologized, and now he's the face of Sunday Night Baseball. And isn't it amazing if you just own up to it and say sorry how in our society we will forgive you? Yeah, and I think, you know, Andy Pettit's another, uh, another guy that you could say went out there and just said, hey, I was doing it, whether it was true or not. He came out and said, I apologize, I was injured, wanted to fulfill my contract, whatever the excuse is. I think you're right in the sense that if they do step forward, actually – yeah, and I think a part of the apology is actually admitting to the to the crime or whatever you want to call it. You know, you've got to fess up and say, "Look, I looked for an advantage. I got an advantage. I abused the advantage, and whatever whether it's PED, sign stealing, or you know some other avenue to try and create an advantage over another player or team, you know, just get get out in front of it. I mean, the the longer you put it off, the more it's going to build up as far as anger and ire towards that 
individual or team. So I agree with you in the sense that, you know, guys have had success in the past in uh, getting in front of it and really apologizing for it. And, you know, society's not, it's tough to fool society. You got to be pretty sincere about it. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. And, and, you know, we do know most teams when there's like chaos around you that it's tough to win games. I don't care what sport it is. How, how do you think this, and I know, I know you really don't know, but do you think this will affect the, the team on the field? Um, first of all, with the sign stealing, I just want everybody to know how hard hitting is, you know, and I hate to be the guy that's like, well, back in my day, but, uh, I, you know, guys were throwing 92 to 95 tops when I was playing. Now you're facing guys that are throwing a hundred miles an hour. So the reaction time has been cut short. So there might be a little more emphasis on trying to figure out and cut down on or eliminate a pitch or two. So you can get, get yourself in a position to have a quality at bat. But, uh, oh, shoot, ask me again what you just said. Hey, you're not that old, by the way. Uh, well, in baseball, in baseball terms, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a part of Jurassic Park, man. <laughs> I, I, I asked, uh, do you think this will, that you just, everything, because everywhere, oh. everywhere they're going to go, we're going to ask, right? There's going to be guys like me hey. asking, I mean, how much do you think this is going to affect them on the field? I, you know what? That is the ultimate test. I mean, they have put themselves in that bullseye to, to be targeted for a lot of anger and, it, you know, from true baseball fans who just love the game because they feel like they tarnish the game itself. Uh, they have single-handedly, you know, singled out teams maybe that they have tried to uh, gain advantage against. So it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting to see how it happens. I know it's going to be awful in, Oh, I don't know. I don't, when I say awful, I don't mean awful. Like everybody's going to jump the fence and go attack these guys. I mean, like verbally assault, you know, like fans do, but maybe even more so because they have a direct link to what they did wrong. And fans in Oakland are going to show a lot of that ire. I think the entire AL division, AL West division is going to give them a, a tough time. And then you're going to have to go into places like Boston and New York where New York, obviously the Yankees, uh, feel uh, cheated out of going to a couple of World Series, so it's going to be a tough environment for them to get into that situation. I don't envy them on the field, but at the same time, you've got to look at this crisis as an opportunity for them to go out there and perform, and if they do perform well, keep your mouth shut, enjoy the moment, and just respect the fact that you were given the opportunity to maybe change some minds. But you know, it's kind of funny. We were at the Houston Sports Awards last night, and my counterpart on the Rocket side is Matt Bullard. And I went up to Bull and I said, "Hey, man, how's your season going?" And he just looked at me and he goes, "Good luck this season, because it's going to be tough for us up in the booth to try and uh, you know call the game as clean as we possibly can and hold these guys to the fire a little bit on our own right." Yeah, it's not going to be easy. But you know, the one thing we'll end on this: there's still a lot of talent in that clubhouse. Yeah, you know what? That's what's interesting about this uh, managerial search that they're going through right now. And as we can give every guy criticism, we can say who's going to fit the best, this and that. But you and I both know that whoever does end up getting this job for the Houston Astros, even with the controversy looming over this ball club, you're getting the keys to a Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. quickly, one more. What would you like to see, a, a, a decision for a guy long-term or do you want to bring in kind of an older guy who's a stopgap just to get you some credibility going right away? 
You know what? I kind of waver on this because I know there's some good young talented guys out there. Will Venables, a guy who's interviewed for this job and he's got a bright future, but I don't know if, if he might be too young and too inexperienced to handle a situation like this, because now you do have a veteran clubhouse and you have a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, an identity issue that you're trying to create. So I'm not sure if the young guy does it, but I waver and go, do you go with a Dusty Baker? Do you go with a uh, John Gibbons, who are, who are guys with proven track records of being players, managers, and also having the ability to communicate to the media? But, uh, you know, as far as the older guys that kind of jump out to me, John Gibbons, I think, is a great guy just because he's handled some controversy. He's won modestly. He knows a lot of guys on this team, but he's also a phenomenal communicator. And I think that's one of the more underrated skills of John Gibbons. But uh, it's going to be interesting. And it's all up to Jim Crane. He's the only one left to make a decision right now as far as GM and manager. Blummer, you're the best. I know this wasn't easy, but you know what? Uh, you guys are going to work through it. And we're going to have some great battles this year between the A's and the Astros. Uh, be well. It was great having you back in the Bay Area. And we'll talk to you soon. No, it's always good being on with you. It's always good being on in the Bay Area. And I had a chance to talk to Marcus Simeon at that Cal, Cal event. And Marcus Simeon's one of the best dudes. And you, I agree with you. The A's, Astros is already a great matchup. I think it's going to be even better in 2020. Take care, my friend. Yep, have a good one, Tony. Boy, it is going to be a long season for the Houston Astros. And I could tell at FanFest, our fan base is unhappy. And when they come to town, we're going to let them have it. Dodger Fan Fest was the same time as A's Hand Fan Fest. They couldn't stop talking about the Astros cheating. We've kind of been pretty tempered, but the Dodgers went all in. So I, the, everywhere the Astros go, they are going to feel it. There is no question. Here is our weekly conversation with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, the great Ray Fossey. You can't have FanFest without a two-time World Series champion, a two-time Gold Glove winner, a two-time All-Star. You can't have FanFest without the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. Foss, I can't wait to see you on Saturday. Tony, you're going to be up there introducing everybody again, right? Of course. So that means you're there front and center. You're the star of the show. So that's perfect. I'm, I'm always happy to be there because it's a great day for A's fans to come out and enjoy seeing players up close. Remember, spring training is close because the stadiums are smaller. The stadiums during the season, you can barely make contact. Fan fest, you're within arm's distance. And I think that's tremendous for the A's fans. They've always come out in great numbers. The players have been very cooperative in coming. And I say that because, you know, it's, it's an option for the player, the manager, the coaches, the staff, uh, the players, everybody's there. And, and I think that's a credit to this A's organization that the players look forward to Fan Fest to get the season started, knowing that spring training is right around the corner. But for the fans, the great A's fans, I think this is tremendous because it does give a chance for the one-on-one. One of the, one of the things that I've enjoyed is the, uh, the World Series trophies. And I know when Mike Gallego was a coach here, Kurt Young was a coach. Um, you know, Dave Stewart hopefully will be there. But there's not a lot of players who can stand in those World Series trophies and say, yeah, I was part of that. So, I mean, I enjoy that. I enjoy the fans who come up and want to take pictures of the World Series trophies. 
the autographs, the question and answers, and you know, it, it's just a tremendous day. So I'm glad you brought it up at the beginning of this uh, this segment. Well, speaking of World Series. So when we're doing the show here in Oakland, right outside of the studio, they have this video that just shows the A's through the years from Philadelphia and Connie Mack in his suit. I can't believe Connie Mack was in a suit. Can you imagine the humidity in Philadelphia wearing that suit? But then it goes through the years. Go ahead. Connie Mack, Connie Mack owned the club. He could do anything he wanted to do. <laughs> but then they <laughs> you had know, you. You own you own a baseball team. You can do whatever you want. You, you're not going to fire yourself. You know that's why he managed over 50 years. So and 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 I'm asked the record that he did will, will never be broken. But that's enough said. <laughs> and then they have the highlight of you guys beating the Dodgers, the dribbler back to uh, back to Raleigh. Raleigh. And then you go running out. It's like everybody ends up ends up just they end up jumping up and like falling on you. Well, the interesting thing about that, Tony, and you're right, it was Bob and Joshua getting the little roller to Raleigh, threw it over to Gino, and here they come in. And, and I see that replay when we're doing uh, the TV games on the NBC Sports uh, Bay Area, and I see the captain, Sal Bando, coming in and jumping on my back. Three months prior to that World Series, I had neck surgery by Dr. Charles Wilson. I had a shattered 6-7 vertebrae that he removed the particles off of my nerve of my right arm. And all of a sudden, here's the captain, all 220 pounds of him jumping on my back and my neck. Fortunately, Dr. Wilson had done such a tremendous job that I didn't feel it. But it was a, it was a great scene. And, um, you know, unfortunately, latter part of that game, and I think maybe we did talk about it, fans remember that um, – it was the late Bill Buckner who hit the ball to right center field that Reggie threw to Dick Green to Bando and nailed him at third base. That would have been the tying run. So one, I think by one, one run, and that would have been the tying run. But uh, it was a great relay from Reggie to Greeny to Bando for the out. And just, you know, th- th- that's what those teams were about, Tony. The pitching, the defense, that's what Dick Williams always preached. Alvin Dark when he came in 74 that year said basically the same thing. So, you know, while the A's were great in winning world championship, it really came down to pitching and defense. And you and I have talked about this a lot. If you have excellent pitching and defense, which, by the way, the A's going into 2020 have an outstanding staff and defense, you're going to win a lot of games because you're never, ever going to blow out everybody with your offense. And even with those great teams that the A's had with Reggie and Bando and Tennis and Rudy and North and Campy getting on base and, Gino, I mean, those were very good offensive players, but it came down to Catfish, Kenny Holtzman, Vita Blue, John Blue Moon Odom, Raleigh Fingers coming out of the bullpen with Daryl Nose and Paul Lindblad and, you know, on and on and on. But just a, a, a tremendous team. But that's the reason you have to develop the farm system, develop good players so you can bring them up, teach them the A's way, and that's play defense and pitch. And, again, you're going to win a lot of games if you do that. And the A's, by the way, since those days with Connie Mack in Philadelphia through Kansas City and now in Oakland have won a lot of world championships, and that's very something to be very proud of as an A's fan. You know, when I think about all the chaos that is around the Houston Astros right now, and they just had their fan fest, and it, it, did, yeah. n- it did not go over well, and it sounds like Jim Crane, the owner, is going to want the guys that are on the 2017 team who are part of this scandal to stand up and say sorry. We'll see what happens down at spring. But we just had Jeff Blum on, and Blum was talking about how everywhere they're going to go this year, it's going to be a firestorm. It's going to be chaos. How tough is it 
I mean, it's just tough to win games. How tough is it when you have all this chaos around you and win games? You know, Tony, I think it could go one of two ways. Number one, it could be devastating. It could be that booze. I mean, I'm sure every place they go, sure, it's going to be a firestorm, but the fans will boo. And I remember when Jason Giambi, and we all remember when he left the A's and went to the Yankees, and unfortunately, he read a teleprompter that said the top ten things. And the last one, I think, paraphrasing, would you want to live in Oakland? That didn't sit well. I've never, ever heard of fan base boo a player more than I heard them boo Jason Giambi when he came back the first time as a Yankee. That is something that I think can happen to the Astros. Every park they go to, because it's been national news, worldwide news, every since it broke out. So they could be devastated or they could say, you know, we're better than this. We're going to show that we can win the right way. And, you know, you, you're going to have – I can envision there was a college – the basketball game had to be recently where – or maybe a, a hockey game where the mascot was banging on an Astros garbage can. You know, so you're, you're going to see a lot of that throughout baseball. But, but, again, they have a good team. And what I think is really interesting, even though the Mets hired uh, Luis Rojas um, to manage, but the interesting thing that I have seen – is that Dusty Baker went in, Buck Showalter's interview, John Gibbons. I'm surprised Mike Socha hasn't. But it looks like that if Jim Crane or when he does hire a manager, it looks like it's going to be a veteran manager. And I think it's somebody like Dusty who, who you know, I saw an interview with him where he's going into Houston where he has a lot of friends and family and, and players who are uh, played for the Astros and played with uh, Dusty, I think, with Atlanta Braves. But I'm happy to see that some of these veteran managers are being called upon to manage. And I think that's where the game is going to go. The A's are fortunate with Bob Melvin. He's a veteran manager. He does what he needs to do to win ball games. The players love him. And I think the fans do the same. But I think in the case of the Astros, and, you know, we talked about with the, with the Angels that uh, uh, Joe Madden was hired. Here's a, here's a veteran manager that is incorporating the analytics with the old school style of baseball, I think they're going to be very good if they have any sort of pitching. But I think the Astros, if they hire someone like Dusty Baker, Buck Showalter, John Gibbons, I think they're showing that they need a better manager under the circumstances to, to take over and handle all of this. But I think more importantly, to be able to talk to the players and say, this has happened in the past. You know, let's go forward and show that we can win without all the presumption of things that might have happened from 2017 forward. Derek Jeter had a charmed career. I, I don't know yep. how many people, you just look at everything that went on in his career, the World Series, the clutch mm -hmm. moments in the big games, being with the Yankees' entire career. You saw his entire career. He's truly an iconic player, Foss. You know, the great thing about players who are able to put on one uniform, when he goes to the Cooperstown, there's only one logo that's going to be there. It's going to be a Yankee because his entire career. Tommy, how would you like to grow up a Yankee fan, sign with the Yankees, be with the Yankees your entire career? And I think just as important for Joe Torrey, who's in the Hall of Fame himself, his number retired, for Joe Torrey to say the best Yankee he ever managed was Derek Jeter. And I think it was because Derek always said, Mr. Torrey. You know, he, he respected him enough that he called him Mr. Torrey instead of skip manager or whatever. But uh, for Derek to have the career that he had, to be the captain, 
I remember interviewing him his last year. And I said, what do you want to do going forward? He said, I want to own a club. What's he doing? He's, he owns at least his name and part owner of the Miami Marlins. So he has lived a charm life. But I think one of the things that he did probably that stands out, he waited till his career was over to get married. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I got married. It helped me. But, you know, living in New York, as he did, who knows? Maybe he said, you know, I don't want to subject my wife to the New York crowd. He waited till he got finished as his career, got married. I think he has a child, lives down in Florida, owns a ball club. But, you know, it, he's had a charm life. But it, it's the, the one thing that really stands out about Derek Jeter. I, I, I'm kind of talking uh, about things as they come to my mind. But there was an all-star game. And there was a point in time where players would take their private planes to the all-star game. And once they played in the game, they would leave, get on the plane and leave. Derek Jeter stood up when the players came out. He said, we're not going anywhere. We're staying here. These players have supported us when we've been on the field. We're going to do the same for them. So for, for me to hear that, it makes it sound like that he's a true baseball person. He loves the game. He wants everybody to respect the game, and especially those players who perhaps in the past had gotten on the planes and left after they played three or four innings and said the heck with everybody else. They got out of there. So he did so many things. He was the captain. Uh, one of the things, too, when he and Andy Pettit went out to the mound to take out Mariano Rivera in his final home game. Uh, you know, how special was that? The big hug, standing ovation, and here's the captain who a year later gets a, gets a game-winning hit, the walk-off hit in his final at bat in Major League Baseball, hits a home run on his 3,000th hit. Uh, I mean, just everything worked well. But I did hear something that he was hitting about 210, 220 at the beginning of his career. He made a horrendously number of errors. Brian Butterfield did a tremendous job working with him, who's now third base coach with Joe Madden with the Angels. But Derek Dreeter became one of those shortstops that every time the ball was hit to him, that you knew he was going to make the play. And, oh, by the way, does that sound familiar with Marcus Simeon? Because, similarly, they had the errors to begin the career, but look how far Marcus Simeon's come. And, of course, Derek Jeter, one vote away from being unanimous. Hey, by the way, Tony, do you know who didn't vote for him? We don't know. I don't know. I don't either. Some, somebody wrote today that said maybe that person just decided, since it was such a great career, pristine career, he did not want to check the box and make it <laughs> – Make a scribble next to his name with a check. It's hard to believe, but, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, Mariano unanimous last year. I thought Derek would be unanimous this year. I thought and think there will be a lot going forward because the ice has been broken. But that's another thing. It will be a good class in July. Happy for Larry Walker. Uh, just watched him from afar being in the National League as he was, but uh, happy to see him getting on his last year of eligibility because uh, – even though people might say he didn't deserve it, uh, his numbers proved. And I, I think being one of the Blake Street bombers, as he was in, in uh, Colorado with Bichette, Castilla, and uh, Galarraga, I mean, they hit a lot of home runs, but he also did a very good job away from there. Remember, he played for Montreal, too. So I'm happy for both of them. You know, when I, about Jeter, he played in just uh, – Fosse, this, you can't make this up. He played in just four games – that the Yankees were eliminated from playoff contention. In 20 years, every game he played but four, whereas his team's still in it. That, that's crazy. And then the other one is 
The Yankees were 511 games over 500 in the games Derek Jeter played, second most only to Lou Gehrig. I mean, it's just it's 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 a, it's it's it really is amazing. I mean, what a career! Both those guys, and as you said, it uh, at the end of July, it, it'll be it'll be rocking there in Cooperstown. Now, I know yeah. I I know where you're going to go on this, but I had to bring it up as Rob Manfred has said. Robot umpires are coming. He said it today. He talked about how they're going to use it in spring training. They're going to use it in some minor league games. How do you feel about robo-umps? How's Cody doing? Because Cody and I talked about this, and I said, no, no, we're not going to talk about that. I don't believe in it, Tommy. I don't. And by the way, I hope Cody's doing well. I know he's he's your right-hand man. I hope uh, Cody's always doing well. But I'll be honest with you. I think the game has changed a lot, and it does not need to change for that. Listen, you cannot, in my um, opinion, and it's mine, and a lot of people have their own, but I believe the human element in the game of baseball has to remain. When they started challenging at first and second and third, remember it started out as home runs, then all of a sudden let's go to challenges on the bases. Look how much time it's taken in a sport that wants to speed up the game or at least have a better uh, pace of game, if you will. But I don't believe, and, and you know, it's, it's not surprising to me that it seems the umpires had their collective bargain and agreement. And the agreement was, from what I heard, was that they agreed to do that. The players haven't agreed to that. And I'll be surprised, I'll be shocked, if the players agree to have a computer call strikes. Now, Side to side, you know, uh, east and west, as they say, on the outside corner of the plate, seven, the plate is 17 inches wide. It can be accurate because it, it doesn't move. It stays the same. But I've always said, how do, you, how do you have a robotic umpire with Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, and Jose Altuve? You know, it, it, to me, north and south, up and down, I don't see how it can make adjustments to have the effective strike zone there. Plus, you'd have to have an umpire at home plate. Hey, speaking of buzzers, that's kind of what he would have to do. He'd get a buzz for a strike, maybe two buzzes for a ball, but he'd have to be there, call plays at the plate, interference, et cetera. But I, I just hope the game doesn't go to that extent because these umpires are good. Every fourth day, they rotate, and there's an umpire behind the plate. Then he goes third, second, first, and then back behind the plate. I don't. I don't think, uh, in watching as long as I have watched baseball, I would rather see the umpire behind the plate, even though he had, you know, and that's part of the game, Tony, where, you know, you as a pitcher, you needed to know the strike zone of every umpire behind the plate. Roger Clemens said that's the first thing I always did. Who's behind the plate? What's his strike zone? Is it low? Does he call the high strike? You know, does he give a couple inches on the corners? So that's part of the game of, of baseball. That's the strategy of the game of baseball. Sure, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to miss pitches. Uh, the, the replays that we show, a lot of times, and fans should understand, that except at Minneapolis at Target Field, because that camera's up so high, the camera's directly over the pitcher's mouth. It is accurate. More times than not, in stadiums, it's to the left or right, which creates an angle where the pitcher is throwing. So a pitch that might look a strike, it's not, or vice versa just because sometimes the angle distorts the positioning of the pitch. But, you know, my, my basic problem with it is that it takes the human element out of it. 
you can't argue anymore anyway, because if you challenge a play, or if you well, put it this way, if you argue balls and strikes, automatic ejection. And if you challenge a play and you don't like the ruling, it's an automatic ejection. So, you know, what, where, where's the game going? And I, I just think, I hope it doesn't happen. That's, that's my opinion. And again, I'm sure there are people who want accuracy. Well, you know, let's not take the human element because otherwise you're going to have four robots on the, on the field, the umpires. What did, what did you go to having a robot, a, a computer say whether a guy's safe or out of third base at second or first, then really, why do you need umpires? So they're part of the game and many people may not like them, but they are part of the game. They've always been a part of the game. And I think, let them continue to call balls and strikes like they have as long as this game has been played. So there's this guy that I know that used to play in Major League Baseball, and he used to play for the A's, and he used to catch Catfish Hunter. And he told me one time <laughs> that he would set up outside, and it was a ball, but because every Thank umpire you. believed uh, that Catfish threw strikes – that they would call a ball a strike, that you would consist. This guy's name's Ray Fossey. He told me he'd that's sit right. up outside. So that's my problem, Foss, is you would sit up outside no, and no. it was a ball and they're it, calling strikes because no, you're fooling no. them. Let, let me clarify that, Tony. I, the reason I was able to do that, and look at the Braves. Look what they did with Maddox, Smoltz, and Lavin. Oh, my I God. Mean, those balls were so, those were, those balls for those guys were so outside. Do you know why, Tony, is because they did not have the computer now that measures and every game is is recorded. And after every game, the home plate umpire gets a disc and it tells him what his percentage of strikes were. It's, it's the reason. Because when I caught, I would set up on the outside part of the plate and move out as far as the umpire would allow me. And the reputation of the pitcher, if, and that's what I, I said even today, that if there's a rookie hitter and a veteran pitcher, guess who's going to get the call? If it's close, it's going to be to the veteran. And surprisingly, there's a buffer zone now. I've talked to umpire uh, supervisors who said there's a buffer zone. A buffer zone is the width of a baseball, County. You think about that. If you could go the width of a baseball to the outside or inside of part of the plate, Look at even there, you're talking about that. So basically what I did, I mean, listen, I, I hit umpires, and, and I'll admit this, I've said it, and will continue to say it, because there was no calculating as far as what the umpire did or did not do. But I had umpires who would get down behind me when Catfish or Holtzman or Vida, guys were on the mound, Blue Moon, they'd say, this is going to be a quick game. Because they knew they were going to be around the plate, and they also knew that if there was something that was close, it was going to be a strike. And you know what? If you want to speed up the game today, Tony, have an umpire call strikes. Eddie Montague, who we see at the Coliseum all the time, Eddie Montague told me, and I want to say it was Lee Wire, uh, I'll have to ask him again, but he told me the umpire that helped him the most was the person who said, think about a strike, not a ball. So if you're behind the plate as an umpire and you're thinking strike and the hitter might be upset, swing the bat. They would speed up the game. There would be fewer walks. And I think you're going to see pitchers around the plate getting strike calls. That's going to force the hitters to swing the bat. And all of a sudden we're going to have the pace of the game and the speed of the game is going to be different. That is what, what it's been the last several years. Uh, you know, robo Ump will bring the high strike back. And uh, I, I don't think you can really have, I don't think you can have launch angle on, on, on a high strike. 
Uh, they'll find a way. <laughs> but, you know, going as far as that is concerned, whenever I first started catching, there was uh, American League umpires, National League umpires. The American League umpire had the balloon chest protector outside, and they would stand a good three to four feet behind the catcher. High, high strike umpire. They, they called the high strike. Go to the National League because they were down in the crouch and in the slot, as Eddie Montague talks about. They were down lower. And so a low strike or low pitch was a strike. Now, you think about at the time when that umpiring situation was in play, if you're catching or you're pitching, you have to more than catcher because the pitcher is pitching today and not tomorrow. But let's say I'm catching and I've got an American League umpire behind the plate who has the balloon chest protector calling the high strike. The next day I have a National League umpire with a – a, uh, inside chest protector down on one knee. So there's your difference of the strike zone up and down, east and west again. And again, with, with the balloon chest protector, the umpire standing over the catcher was directly behind him. He could see both sides of the plate. I think now, and I had a National League umpire tell me many, many years ago, that if you set up, set up outside, I can't see the outside part of the plate. So I think that's where the reputation of the pitcher comes in because let's say I'm outside two inches, three inches off the plate, and the umpire is to my left shoulder with the right-handed pitcher, right-handed batter. He may call a strike, it's off the plate because it's an angle of which he can't see. But the American League umpire with the balloon chest protector was right over the top. He could see both sides of the plate, but he couldn't see the lower strike because the catcher was blocking it. So he became on the corners and a high-strike umpire. When you, when you getting into town? <laughs> hey, Fan Fest, buddy. It's Saturday, right? That's... I'll be there. I, I can't wait for you to see you because, you know what? People should understand that you do a tremendous job. Seriously. You do a great job to do all the interviews that you do, to have your right-hand man, Cody, there, helping you along, getting the interviews, but you have to research and do the interviews. It's a privilege being on with you. It's always a privilege seeing you. And A's fans are fortunate that you're behind the mic. Well, the reason why I'm asking is we're going to be in Oakland on Friday. And if you're around, we could go do lunch. Man, you're putting me on the spot, aren't you? I have to see. I have to check my calendar, as they say. <laughs> well, 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 you you, you just got to f- figure out when you have to put the uh, the jet fuel in Fosse Air you, and bring your private jet no, up no, here. No, 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 no. Don't do that. No. But I, but I will say that I look forward to spring training because you and I get to sit down there and talk and record and do – I mean, there's so much – so many great things to talk about in baseball, seriously. I mean, a lot of things have changed. A lot of things are there in the past which, have, you know, won't change forever. And, you know, it's just a tremendous game. And I think that's why the selection of the two by the baseball writers and uh, Ted Simmons and the late Marvin Miller who – should have been a long time ago into Cooperstown. You know, that's the fun part about it because the anticipation, the voting, I still say that, that broadcasters, because, well, I mean, maybe we may not see all the players, but now with interleague play, we see most of them, but uh, it's the writers. They deserve it. I think they have to qualify to become a uh, baseball writer association uh, voter, but you know, it's, it's good, but I, I, this is a great time of the year because, you know, there's always, it's, it's almost like the all-star game because, you have the selections. Why didn't this guy make it? Why didn't this guy make it? Same thing with the Hall of Fame. You know, 
Why didn't Omar Vizquel make it? Why didn't Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling and on and on and on? Why didn't these guys do it? But uh, I'm just proud to say, Tony, I played long enough to get my name on that ballot just one time. That's it. <laughs> one time. That's all that mattered. Well, that's all that mattered. You are one of the top Indians and top A's of all time. Well, that was a privilege. It really was. You know, and you and I went out to Heritage Park in Cleveland last year. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Stand out there and see the plaques and the statues of all the great Indian players. And that's a special place that the fans, when they go to Cleveland, they should make a, a point of going out to Heritage Park because Bobby DiBiasio did a great job. And I know you and I got a chance to visit that and see it and really enjoyed it. All right, lunch on me Friday, and we'll see you at Fan Fest on Saturday. Look forward to it, my friend. You're a good man. And you're, the best to Cody. You're the, Cody's, Cody's the top of the list. <laughs> we'll bring him to lunch. Okay. <laughs> Take care, Tony. Good S- talk to you, buddy. See you, buddy. Ah, oh, it's great catching up with Ray every single week on A's Cast Live. Our next guest, one of my favorites, a national baseball columnist for Bleach Report. He's been covering this game for a long, long time. Here is Scott Miller. Scott is with us now. Scott, how are you? Real good. How are, uh, how are things today on the day after the Hall of Fame uh, voting? You know what? I I, I got to say, I'm, I'm so happy. I mean, we knew Jeter was going in. Shocked that he wasn't. He didn't get every single vote. But, I, I, you know, watching a lot of Larry Walker, and I know there were times where, you know, injuries and, and took from him playing in as many games as he possibly could. But I always viewed him as a Hall of Fame player. player. I thought he was phenomenal, a five-tool guy. I was really happy for him. Yeah, Chris, I, uh, I, I don't disagree. Well, with part of what you said, I, and I'm not vehement either way. Uh, the reason I pause, I did not have Walker on my ballot. My ballot was Derek Jeter, Kurt Schilling, Omar Vizquel, Scott Rowland. Um, I, Walker is one of those guys over the last, ever since he's been on the ballot, he's one of those guys that I agonize over all the way up until I send the ballot in. And the reason I haven't checked the box next to him, for the, it, the, the, the overriding reason, it's not the offensive splits, course field versus on the road or anything like that. It's just he only had one season where he played over 144 games. He missed so much time. Uh, I think he played in about 77% of the possible games of his teams over his career, which means – he missed awfully close to 25%. And for me, especially as an outfielder, I felt like he didn't, he just wasn't there in the lineup enough. But that said, his numbers are there, not, not his counting, so-called counting numbers, you know, his career hits, career home runs, they're a little short, but percentages you know on base percentage that kind of thing uh mvp once uh batting champ three times so so bottom line what i'm getting at is i'm happy for him he's a really good guy um his reaction yesterday watching the video it was all so good um you know i we all all of us voters do the best we can and for me he fell short but I don't have a problem with him going in. I, I, I just mapped out the reason I didn't vote for him, but it wasn't clear cut. And, and you know, it, I, I did, might not have voted for him, 
but I'm happy for him, and I have no problem at all that he's going. You know, I, I wonder if you can answer this one for me, because I was thinking about this today as, you know, people talk about the Coors Field effect, and that's why they didn't vote for him. Well, then I turn around on the other side, and I think of Jeff Kent. Why doesn't Jeff Kent get any love? I mean, he played all those years in San Francisco, hard to hit, freezing cold, yep. and he put up great numbers. He was an MVP. So if you're going to bang Larry Walker for playing at Coors Field, why doesn't Kent get the love for playing at AT&T? Yeah, you're right. There, There is that. And, and uh, conversely, along that same line of thought, um, as I think you know, Chris, we probably talked about it before. I'm not – I don't vote for the steroid guys. Um, a lot of my colleagues do. Obviously, we can have a six-hour, well-reasoned discussion arguing both sides of that. But anyway, to your point on, on if, if people bang Walker for the course field offense, why don't they give Kent more props for the, for the, the AT&T? Um, I bring up the steroids because I felt that way. That's one reason I started voting for Fred McGriff, kind of the same thing. I felt like if, if, if I'm not going to and other people aren't going to vote for some of the steroid guys because the number, you know, partly because the numbers just reach cartoon proportions statistically. Well, Fred McGriff's numbers are awful darn good. And I felt like there are victims of the steroid era. And I felt like McGriff was one of them, whereas his numbers maybe didn't look nearly as impressive as they should have because you had other guys doing what they were doing and blowing up their numbers. It's kind of, you know, a little bit of apples and oranges, but it's kind of to your point about, hey, if you're going to not give Walker credit, well, Kent should get extra credit. I'm looking at 2022. I can't believe I'm saying this, but yeah, 2022. <laughs> uh, it's hard to believe where we're <laughs> where we well, are. In there. Yep. So 2022, you're going to have first time on the ballot, Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz, and it'll be the last year for Bonds, Clemens, and Sosa. That is going to be an interesting time. That is going to spark a lot of conversation. That is, you're right. It's going to be fierce, fierce debates on that because, you know, part of the Larry Walker phenomenon this year, you know, he, he, he did something I, nobody else in all of history has done. His last two, this was his last year on the ballot. His last two years on the ballot, I think he he got a twenty percent bump voting wise in each year. Two, you know, last year he went up twenty percent, and then again this year he went up twenty percent. And and anyway, part of the thing with with the phenomenon I thought with Walker this year was exactly what you just said. It was his last year on the ballot, and I think you know people tend to take a harder look at guys who it's their last year on the ballot. And we saw Walker increase by 20%. So that's where it's going to get very interesting two years from now, as you say, with, with Bonds and Clemens, because there are a whole lot of guys maybe that don't vote for them now. But when they reach their last year on the ballot, it's going to be very interesting to see does how many people change their minds and say, okay, I've penalized Bonds and Clemens for nine years. This is their last chance, um, you know, and maybe – People have a come to Jesus moment. I don't want to be the one responsible for keeping them out of the Hall of Fame. Who knows? 
but there very well could be some vote shifting that last year, and that, that's going to be very interesting. We have a conspiracy theory about the one voter who didn't vote for Derek Jeter. You ready for this? Lay it on me. Before you do, I, I can debunk it if it's one. If your conspiracy theory is me, I did vote for him. Okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> we think the person who didn't vote for him is someone in South Florida who's angry with what he's done with the Marlins and how he's treated people down with the Marlins, and this was their one way to get back at him. You know, it's uh, there are all kinds of theories that, that, I mean, that's as good as any. I saw some online yesterday, people saying uh, it's probably some moron that covers the Boston Red Sox. But to be honest with you, I don't think the uh, the media gets so wrapped up in, you know, like uh, Red Sox media. They, they, they don't all side with the Red Sox and hate the Yankees. I mean, the, the, the bad blood between the Red Sox and the Yankees, that's on the field. Off the field, you know, I've covered a lot of those games i've been with you know the the boston media gets along fine with the new york media they're there to cover the story i don't think there's a lot of rooting for the red sox or rooting for the yankees i think they're just there for the drama so you know i, I did see some people saying oh it's probably some red sox guy that don't, didn't vote for cheater i i would doubt that i mean I, I think your theory is uh you know probably uh you know holds more uh, water than than the other theories I've heard. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, and you know, speaking of what we've saw recently with the Astros Fan Fest, you know, I think A Rod showed us, you know, years of lying to us. But once A Rod finally came clean, owned up to it, said sorry. You know, it's our nature as Americans to forgive. And now he's Sunday night baseball, still does the Fox pre and post game show during the postseason. It's like the Astros need to take a, 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 a page out of A Rod's playbook because Bonds and Clemens have never said they've never owned it, never said sorry. They're not getting in the hall right now. What do you think the Astros have to do? Because it looks like the way they were at FanFest, if they're not going to come clean and talk about it, this is going to be a long year for them. Yeah, I, I, a couple answers here, Chris. Uh, one, uh, you, you make a good point. I mean, A-Rod went on the I'm sorry, I apologize tour, and you're right. Look where he is now. I, 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 I'm still not thrilled with where he is now. I, 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 think, I can't believe his comeback. I, I think given what he did and suing baseball and suing the Players Union and all that stuff, I, I mean, I'm not saying you need to hold a grudge forever, but I, I don't know that he needs to exactly be like one of the most marquee television commentators in major league baseball right now, you know, I mean, you could have a little bit smaller role in the game would be fine with me, but, uh, but, but you're right. I mean, you know, he, 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 he did some very good things PR wise and his image has been mended. Um, you know, look at Pete Rose, look how many years you mentioned bonds and Clemens. You're right. They have not apologized. They've remained obstinate and they're still, uh, you know, on the outside looking in, look at Pete Rose. Um, I think if he would have handled things differently his first uh, year or two under that lifetime suspension, you know, perhaps, maybe, that would have been overturned by now. Maybe not, but we'll never know. But what, the one thing we do know is if you're going to keep lying about things like Rose did, you're not going to be forgiven. And you're right about the Astros. I think 
that was really, really tone deaf over this past weekend uh, at their fan fest, you know, Altuve and Bregman. And um, I I think a couple things there. One, I mean, their answers, it's almost like they were playing the victims themselves. And that just, it came off looking awful. Uh, They needed to hire some, uh, probably for my money, I I think they would have been smart to invest in hiring a couple of uh, public relations crisis managers uh, to go over some things with those guys before they were turned loose on the public in interviews because they were clearly unprepared and, and, you know, they, they were not, they, they showed no remorse. So it'll be interesting when we get to spring training in a few weeks, because, um, you know, Jim Crane, the Astros owner was out yesterday in, in, in public. And he, um, you know, he said that our players are going to meet among themselves and he thinks he's pretty sure some apologies will be forthcoming when spring training starts. So I think it's going to be belated, but I think when they gather as a team in uh, West Palm Beach, I'm, I'm guessing we're going to get some awfully different answers from the Astros. What were your feelings about Major League Baseball cutting a deal with the Players Union saying, hey, if the players come clean, they will not be disciplined. So it's like they commit the crime and they got away with it and they get to keep everything. And you got four people who pay the price. Everybody else doesn't. How do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, I, I, I'm a little mixed. I, it, 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 yes, it seems as if players should have been punished. Um, however, I think the full immunity that they gave the players uh, helped baseball's investigation uh, get to the bottom of exactly what happened and how it happened, uh, you know, in a fairly timely manner without, uh, you know, this thing dragging out for the next two years and without lawsuits and depositions and grievances filed by the players. Uh, I think given what it is, um, I think that, um, I mean, I can see the players seem like they're getting away with things um, well, they did, but I can, I understand trying to get to the bottom of this in a timely manner and, uh, and find out exactly what happened. I think giving the players the immunity uh, they did uh, allowed baseball to paint a very vivid portrait of exactly what happened and how it happened. And I also think, well, I'm, I'm not excusing the players at all, but I don't have a problem going after the the uh, those in, in charge of re- responsibility for the team uh, in charge of leadership. I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, I know that Alex Cora is the guy that concocted this, and I know Rob Manford said it was player-driven. Um, that's those front office. There is absolutely no way Jeff Lunau and his staff did not know about this and condone it. Um, uh, I, I think the, you know, I don't mind baseball coming down hard on, on him and his, you know, his people, or at least him, because, um, you know, that the whole analytics culture in Houston is what led to this. Um, I do think the owner, Jim Crane got off easy. And again, that gets back to baseball, cutting a deal with the players and cutting the deals, whatever deals they cut. Uh, You know, I mean, baseball really high up in that, 
nine-page report following the investigation, they immediately exonerated Jim Crane, said, oh, the owner didn't know anything about this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that for, for Crane, you know, and then by, by firing Lunau and A.J. Hinch, um, the organization was fined $5 million, but by finding, by firing those two, um, eventually Crane's going to get the fine back in their salaries um, because with each of them, Lunau and Hinch suspended for this year, this upcoming year, um, you know, that's going to defray the cost of the, of the 5 million. So, I mean, there are a lot of layers to this, some of which I think turned out pretty well, some of which I think didn't. You know, one of the best rivalries, and, and it's kind of a new one, but it's going to be electric this year, is the Oakland A's against the Houston Astros. Yes, it is. And that's also, uh, Chris, why I, I, I totally get the feeling by some that the players should have been hit harder. But a, a couple things here. Um, the Astros players, I think their punishment is going to kind of be ongoing because of the way this whole scandal has been portrayed by baseball. Um, I, I imagine when the Astros come walking into the Coliseum there in Oakland, uh, it's going to be pretty ugly for them as it should be, you know, the fans are going to be all over their backs, same as in Yankee stadium, same as everywhere else the Astros go. So I, I do think there's that. I think it'll be very interesting to watch the Astros, especially at home this year, uh, where theoretically there won't be any cheating. Uh, let's see what happens with their numbers. I think uh, if the numbers dip a little bit, I think that's going to continue to deepen the taint and the shame. Um, so I think those are a couple other interesting aspects of this. And, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see, you know, where it goes. But, uh, you know, I, as far as taking away the Astros title, I mean, I guess you could do that. But to me, that's kind of meaningless simply because the games have already been played. You're not going to award the title to the Dodgers. I mean, Dodgers probably wouldn't even want it. You know, I mean, they didn't win. Um, but beyond that, in terms of, you know, the most important thing, because they're professionals in college. Okay. You go, you know, they NCAA strips schools of the title, but in professional sports and in this example, the Astros, the world series shares for the winning team that year, the Astros got about $450,000 to a man. So, I mean, to me, it's like, forget stripping the world series title. The, the, the punishment would be to make them pay their world series shares back. And we all know that ain't going to happen because talk about lawsuits and things like that. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no precedent for that, but you know, I don't think taking away the Astros I, it, to a degree, if you stripped them of their title, it would embarrass the organization. And in Houston, they'd feel bad about it. But in terms of, again, trying to strike at the players and punish the players, you know, it's like the burglars already, got away in the getaway car from the bank they just robbed you know i mean like i said four hundred fifty thousand or so to a man you know they ain't giving that back and you know i guess you could try to make them give their rings back but you know that's that's probably not going to happen scott always appreciate the time and we'll check with you in spring training all right chris take care my friend from one calmness to another we always appreciate scott's effort and coming on the program how about woody page 
absolute character. He's been in Denver for the longest time. And, of course, all the years on Around the Horn on ESPN. Here is Woody Page from the Mile High City. Woody, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And obviously a very good day for the Colorado Rockies as finally a Rocky is getting into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, it's about time, don't you think, Chris? <laughs> 27 years, one guy in the Hall of Fame, it probably makes sense. It looked a little sad to see uh, the only number they had retired over the years was uh, was Jackie Robinson's. And then they retired uh, Todd Helton a couple of years ago, and now they're going to retire uh, not only is Larry going in the Hall of Fame, but the Rockies are going to retire his number this year, which seems appropriate. You know, it, it, it just bugs me because, you know, when you look at the eye test and you watch Larry Walker play, there's very few players in the history of the game that were truly five-tool players. He could do it all, hit for average, hit for power. He could run. He had the great arm. I thought he was a no-brainer. I, I, maybe I wouldn't say first ballot because I know there was the injury bug there, but when you watched Larry Walker, you knew you were watching a Hall of Fame player. Well, I thought so, but I think what happened, Chris, was because of his uh, steady and, and escalating incline in the voting percentages that oh, this is a case of uh, the people out there beyond the seam heads and I guess I'll consider myself that I've covered Major League Baseball forever, but uh, that we're pointing out things. Everybody just dismissed him early on saying, well, of course, Phil, end of story. Well, as people pointed out uh, over the years, he played 30% of his games in Coors Field. I mean, he played in Montreal for, what, five years and then finished uh, five, six more. And so out of his 17 years, 10 were in, of course, field half of those that were on the road. So when you think about it in his career, I I believe that people out in the public had a lot to do with changing people's minds in regard to his overall war. Uh, a lot of the new analytic numbers that really hadn't been uh, uh, paid attention to up until the last five six years, I would guess. And so I I think the groundswell really helped him. But you brought up the point. I call him a six tool play, player. And, and and the sixth tool would be, we know the five, but the six would be outthinking people. I don't think that people realize that uh, he led the league in outfield assist, outfield double plays, throwing people out at first base. I mean, those are things that not only require physical abilities, but the ability to outthink your opponent. And he did that, I thought, uh, better than probably anybody that I had been around uh on a close basis. And we used to play golf during spring training. Once the season started, he would play golf. And I had a story in my column today that uh, we were playing in Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, and on a par five, he hit it 254 because uh, we knew how far the distance was onto the green on a par five. And I said, what club did you use? And he showed me a club and it was pitching wedge. That was the <laughs> longest ball I ever saw him hit. He had one about 500 feet in Coors Field, but he hit one on the golf course that was, what, 800 feet, 900 feet? <laughs> so uh, he, he was a good athlete. Uh, he wanted to be a hockey goalie. He bowled a 300 game once. Uh, I knew about that. He was uh, big on snowmobiles and adventurous kind of stuff. And I guess the two knocks against him were Coors Field and the fact that uh, he was injured a lot. And I, and I actually, in spring training, said, why do you run into walls? 
you save one out and you could be out of the lineup for three weeks. And he said, you know, you're right about it. And the first game of the season, he was diving into a wall for a ball. So that's the way he played. It was kind of hockey tough kind of baseball. He played a, He played baseball like he's a hockey player. <laughs> yeah, and, and people don't understand, because I also work for the Raiders, so I come there every year, take on the Broncos, that playing in elevation is so hard on your body. I think a lot of people don't really understand that. Absolutely. Good good point you made there that people talk about how it affects the visiting teams. It affects the home teams too, because what I tried to figure out over the years was when the Rockies, uh, when the Rockies would leave Coors Field and go on a road trip, they were so accustomed to the ball not breaking that when somebody in Cincinnati would break off some good sliders and, and, and curveballs, uh, they had problems keeping up with it. What they finally figured out was to take with them uh, uh, a, a pitcher who was not just a batting practice pitcher, but somebody who would throw a lot of the breaking stuff to get them adjusted back to being on the road. I thought it always and will continue to haunt pitchers that they have to just work mechanically so hard at altitude to have the ball do some kind of dancing that it just affects them over the course of the year, that you can't have relief pitchers who are throwing 75 games here. I mean, they try to do it, but you can't really do that because you're just wearing people out because of the altitude. And people go, well, it's not heat like it would be in in, in, in Arizona if the, if the dome was open, but Miami, something like that. But uh, uh, as a couple of the Dodgers announcers told me a couple of years ago, there's not enough humidity in Denver, which sounds kind of strange, to actually have the pitchers be able to grasp the baseball. That once they put it in the, humid, the humidor, it sort of dries them out, and it really needs there needs to be misters. <laughs> I'm sure you've been in bars where they have misters. That the whole stadium should have misters where the where it would produce uh, fake humidity almost. So there are a lot of a lot of things, you know, being with the Raiders and the A's, and when they come in here, the players love, the hitters love to do it, the kickers love to do it from the Raiders over the years. Janikowski, uh, you know, kicked Long's field goal here uh, for tie. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it has effects on, on both teams because of just uh, uh, the conditions. I, when you're here for a while, this has nothing, I'm going off, off tilter. Uh, here, but uh, when you're here for a while, you develop more uh, red corpuscles, and you get sort of adjusted to what the altitude is doing to your body. But if you're coming in for a short period of time, nobody's ever figured it out. Uh, an ex-Cleveland Cavaliers coach uh, once told me, "I said, how do you deal with the altitude?" He said, "We bring bags of uh, air from Cleveland." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do, do you think this now paves the way for Todd Helton? Yeah, I I think so. Uh, Todd didn't have the kind of numbers. Uh, uh, be truthful, after the humidor was installed in Denver, uh, Todd Helton's numbers went down dramatically. Uh, he didn't have the same kind of home runs. Hit a lot of doubles in his career. Uh, had a good batting average, but tailed off the last two or three years badly. Uh, I think he's borderline, and I don't think I think that that's going to help that Larry Walker got in. But I'm certain 
that uh, it's going to be a struggle for for uh, for Todd Helton, although he he doubled his numbers up to about 29%. I think Larry also benefited by the fact that uh, baseball writers tend to become more sympathetic uh, when you're in your 10th year. This is the third, third player that they've waited 10 years to put in. And it was very close, six votes. Uh, 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 so I'm, I'm happy for him. I'm happy for the organization. I think it, that everybody should be represented in uh, the Hall of Fame in some way. You know, I think about Nolan Arenado, and last year he signs a big contract, face of the franchise, wants to be a Rocky forever. Now talking about trading him, he's not happy. What is going on with Arenado and the Colorado Rockies, and how long do you think he'll be a Rocky? I think everybody uh, listening to this would agree that he's one of the uh, – to be kind to everybody, he's in the top 10 players in all of baseball. I think he has a chance of being the greatest third baseman. Brooks Robinson was that. But I think he has a chance of, uh, over a period of year. He, he wins Golden Glove every year. He hits uh, 320s in the top three, four most valuable players. And he got the kind of contract that was available to guys of his, of his stature last year. But the Rockies have been in the playoffs for two consecutive seasons. Never happened before. They didn't advance, but uh, uh, I think he saw promise in what they were doing with the young pitching staff, which fell apart this past year. And uh, when the Rockies basically announced during the offseason that they weren't going to do anything, uh, their their strategy is uh, reminds me of me. My retirement strategy, Chris, is to buy Powerball tickets. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what their strategy was that they are hoping their their strategy is hope and wish that they hope and wish that Ian Desmond, who has uh, uh, peed down his leg for the last four years, uh, returns to the way he was when he was with the Nationals, which is not going to happen. They can't find a position for him. He can't play first base, can't play center field. He, he's no longer going to play shortstop. Uh, Murphy came over here and uh, can't play first base. Can't play first base. He, he couldn't play dead in a in a western movie the way he plays first base. And uh, they called Dick Stewart at one time Doctor Strange Club. Well, Daniel Murphy is uh, is a second baseman playing at first base and he didn't hit well. And that's all he really can do. He should be in the American League as a DL somewhere. Uh, DH. Uh, are on the DL as he was this past year. So they, they've made a lot of mistakes with their uh, relief pitching. They spent a lot of money, so they said they were just going to hold true this year. Well, they finished uh, 35 games out of first place, so their only strategy is to hope. And so he thought when he signed the contract that this was a team that was going to be in, in the competitive state with with the, the Diamondbacks, the Dodgers, and the Giants. Well, and the Padres are coming on some. Uh, and they've signed some players, and so I, I think he felt like he was sold a bill of goods. And there's the, there, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of dissension with the people in terms of the media and the fans here on both sides, which kind of surprised me. They say, well, you know, you got that big contract, you ought to just eat it. Well, you know, you, players want to play for contending teams, and if the Rockies are going to slip back into that. Uh, into that area they were in before these past two playoffs of two years ago and and a year ago, then he doesn't want to be a part of that because Todd Helton spent most of his career, we're just talking about him, 
Larry Walker got in the playoffs his first year with the Rockies and never again. Uh, Todd Helton had uh, two opportunities in the playoffs over a long, extended career. And and I think players know they're going to get their money. It's just a matter of uh, of uh, if you want to be like Ernie Banks and spend your whole career and never get into into the postseason. And and I don't think today's player re- really wants any part of that. They know they're going to get two hundred million dollars if you're a star player. You want to play for a team that's going to be uh, in the postseason on a regular basis. And the Rockies are not that. I mean, a previous general manager, Dan O'Dowd, once said, you know, if we can be in the playoffs uh, every seven years, that's pretty good for a team in our market. Well, that's not acceptable to players. So uh, I don't blame him for feeling like, okay, you know, I signed the contract and you're out there seeing if anybody wants to trade for me. So that and the fact that it's a lousy team, uh, brought him. He's he's not a guy that whines and hollers about his situation. So I think that sh- shocked everyone. I think he'd love to play on the West Coast, uh, somewhere up and down the coast, because that's where he's from. And those teams, including the A's, have, are are competitive on an annual basis. Well, let me say, ESPN's Around the Horn has always been one of my favorite shows, and you're the all-time champ. And I've always wanted to ask you. Where do you come up with all those sayings that you put up behind you during that show? I need a really good answer to that because everybody asked me that on the streets and on uh, in interviews and everything. And the truth of it is not a good, a very good story. Uh, usually when I'm drinking at a bar on bar napkins, I write them down. And then the next day I look at them and I go, were you drunk or something? <laughs> <laughs> I just got to work on it yesterday. I worked on it for about 15 minutes and, and I, I come up with 10 or 20 and I dismiss most of them or they go on television and people go, well, that wasn't any good. I never promised they were going to be any good. It's just, it's just a thing on the blackboard, but it's, it's probably going to be uh, on my tombstone. I guess there will, my tombstone will be a blackboard. Would you say? <laughs> but I go through, I'll just give you one example. I went through TSA over the holidays, and they pulled me out of the line, and I thought, well, I don't have any drugs. I don't have any problems or guns or anything like that. They wanted to take a photo with the, uh, a selfie with the uh, blackboard, and they wanted me to put on it, TSA agents are great or something like that. And so, yeah, I went along with it because I was hoping I could get through the security line pretty quickly, but it's, it's just something I started about 18 years ago. And uh, my, my assistant and I were having some fun of trying to come up with something and we tried to blackboard and truthfully uh, the vice president of ESPN called me and said, that's not ESPN, get rid of the blackboard. I hadn't gotten any permission. I just put it up by me and uh, I went, sure, sure. Yeah, fine. A week later he called me back and he said, uh, put the, I won't use the adjective, but he said, put the blackboard back up. And I said, "Why? Wow, you've gotten so many calls from from uh, the public about how much they love it. He said, no, the president of ESPN likes it. I guess we both together, one year my agent said he was representing two clients when we were negotiating with ESPN. He said, you got to pay Woody this and you got to pay the blackboard this. And they said, well, it's an inanimate object and so is the mute button on Around the Horn. But I, I appreciate you watching the show because – when we first went on the air 18 years ago, we were ripped. I mean, people loved pardon and still do love pardon interruption and interaction between uh, uh, the two hosts of the shows. And around the horn came on, and people thought, "Well, this is uh, a joke." I mean, it was basically a spinoff, and people thought it was a joke, and that we yelled loud. But the whole idea was to be like guys uh, shouting in a bar about 
you know, sports subjects. And so it, it's, it's survived and people have come to understanding not the scoring system because we don't understand the scoring system, but they've come to understand we're uh, mostly having fun and offering opinions that are pretty worthless for the most part. Woody, you're the best. Thank you so much for the time. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Chris. Anytime. Uh, well, not anytime, but, uh, you know, call me every year or so and see if I'm still alive. <laughs> All right, buddy. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, what do you do with Nolan Arenado? A lot of people think it's inevitable that he will be traded, but when will they do that? Very unsettling. You sign your superstar. He's going to be the face of your franchise for the rest of his career, and one year later, it's we got to trade the guy. Absolutely unbelievable. So we want to thank Jeff Blum of the Astros, our own Ray Fossey, Scott Miller from Bleach Report, and Woody Page from Denver. Thank you for listening to A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 